Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then let's begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight's uh, lecture. And again, Father, whatever's me, just move it aside and let's just keep the stuff that you want us to remember. I thank you for this lesson. This lesson was, was um, changing for me. It was, a, it was really good. And I thank you for this class and I thank you for the people here. So be with us now. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, well, you know, what I love about this is there's no other chapter like this in the Bible. Nowhere has a, a pagan king given his account of insanity in his own words that he experienced by Daniel's God who humbled him. And this is the God of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were the despised race, not only now but back then and with the Babylonians. And they were also known for conquering and humiliating. That's how they retreated. So this really makes it a really special chapter that a pagan king of, you know, grand proportions would, would humble himself towards the Jewish God. So that's why it's a unique chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar, his uh, spiritual journey with God began when Daniel interprets the king's troubling dream back when we began in chapter 2, that first troubling dream. And then... He also learns that this God can miraculously preserve his followers even in the midst of a blazing furnace. And we learn that with, you know, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And um, Nebuchadnezzar witnessed that. That's what's so interesting about where we are now. And then no longer the observer, he now has a personal humbling encounter with God Almighty himself in this chapter. So you might call this Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. And it was probably composed with Daniel's help because Daniel was his right-hand man and he was helping him write. So, um, and it's also mentioned, I just want to say, I know I said last week or the week before that Belshazzar, which is his Babylonian name, I believe it was last time we got together, um, that that was the only time Daniel referred to himself. He is referred to as Belshazzar in this chapter, but in Nebuchadnezzar's words, not in Daniel's. And then there's a couple of times it's Daniel that he refers to as Daniel, which I found was really interesting. So if you want to go back and read it, you'll catch that. Um, all the kings in the book of Daniel fall under total control of God, which I love. Nebuchadnezzar is merely the first example. The point is, God can work in the life of any person he chooses regardless of his or her status. So I want us to remember that when we're talking about current events. All current events and all leaders. God can work in the life of any person he chooses, regardless of his or her status. So we're not to fear. We need to always keep this in perspective, in mind of what I said, like the news events that bring doubt. It is not ours to judge, but it is ours to trust in God's will, and that is being done. And that's hard sometimes with what we see. That's why it's important we put on those spiritual eyes, those kingdom eyes, rather than look at what our earthly eyes see. King Nebuchadnezzar did not share um, did not just share what God had done 
with a chosen few who would listen, he wanted to share with the whole world that who would know this wonderful God. That's why this grandiose introduction and praise in verse 3 of chapter 4. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is eternal, um, is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endless from generation to generation. Now that's a statement of praise. So the events of chapter 4 took place many years after the events of chapter 3. Okay? So if you remember at the beginning of chapter 2, when he first had that dream, he had only been in, in um, reign, he had only reigned as king for a couple of years. He was a young and untested king. In chapter 3, I don't, I don't remember, it was a few years later, I think we, we discussed that. But this is many years later. Nebuchadnezzar is well into his reign when this dream happens. A great deal of archaeological and historical evidence supports the date of approximately 582 B.C when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. This would have been about 20 years into his reign. That's why I'm able to say that. He had conquered many lands by then. And Nebuchadnezzar had indeed become the supreme ruler of the ancient world. So he was the king of the king of the king of the king of all the empires. But at the height of his success, Nebuchadnezzar has this fearful dream of a great tree. Now, trees have a great deal of significance in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, trees are mentioned. So let's just run through a few examples to wake up our memory. We are told in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 about, you know, a tree uh, or trees uh, that represent good and evil and the tree of life that are in the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so there's that. Then in the first psalm, in the book of Psalms, it tells us we are, that we are like a tree. Psalm 1-3 says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. In Ezekiel chapter 31, metaphorically speaking, Assyria takes on the form of mighty cedars of Lebanon. And these are cedar trees. And then Jesus told parables about trees. One example is in Mark 11 about the fig tree that withers. And uh, so Jesus is talking about trees. And then Paul compared Israel to an olive tree and the Gentiles being grafted in. And that's found in Romans eleven twenty four. It says, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, we're grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So I thought that was good scripture. I wanted to put that there with that picture of an olive tree. And then there's the cross. Jesus died on a cross that came from a tree. And then in the book of Revelation, it refers to the tree of life. So I just wanted to bring those to just kind of wake us up a little bit. And remember, there's trees that are talked about all throughout the Bible. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a great tree, a very large tree that reached all the way to the sky. It could be seen to the ends of the earth, and it was fruitful and green with luxury, luxurious foliage, and it provided shade and shelter and food for many, many living creatures. And Nebuchadnezzar loved trees. He spent a lot of time and money working on them. Ancient manuscripts tell us about his love for the cedar forests of Lebanon. It was his favorite place in the empire outside of Babylon. That's where he spent a lot of time. 
He imported beautiful cedar logs for the decoration of Babylonian buildings. It says that Babylon was built with bricks and then also cedar wood. And there was lots of greenery and plants. Apparently it was a very beautiful place because Babylon is out in the desert. So, um, so then, but then going back to our scripture, but then an angel appeared and ordered that this tree be chopped down and stripped of its leaves and fruit. And then a stump of the tree remained, but the stump would be bound with bands of iron and bronze. Now, looking in your Bible, notice that up to this point in the dream, the angel refers to the tree as it. But then abruptly, the angel begins referring to the tree as he in the middle of verse 15. Right after it spoke of the stump remaining in the ground and after it was cut down and bound, the angel begins to refer to the stump as he. The angel proclaimed that he, the one the tree represented, would be out in the elements, drenched by rain. He would then eat grass like, a, like the beasts of the field. His mind would be changed from that of a man to that of a beast, and his affliction would last for a period of seven seasons, which are interpreted as seven years. So he was out there in the elements for seven years. Or So, Nebuchadnezzar goes to Daniel. The king explains to Daniel about his dream, and now Daniel interprets it. So clearly, the dream has negative implications for the king. This is probably why the pagan wise men give no satisfactory interpretation. We touched on this when we were talking about the lesson. They suspect that the dream prophesies bad news, but remember, they had built their careers on saying what the king wanted to hear. So they're like, I ain't, I'm not touching that one. you know. So they're not about to be truthful with him now because he's still a king to be feared. So in Ephesians, though, so as just a reminder, let's go to the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.15, it reminds us to speak the truth, but speak it in love. How much easier it would have been for Daniel to fudge the truth and simply claim he didn't know, right? I mean... That really would be. Everybody would save their necks. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I don't know. But he would have also missed the opportunity to reach a pagan king with God's truth. There's always a bigger picture going on around us. It's more important for us to be obedient than to be disobedient and take the, the quick way out. We are to walk in obedience and speak truth in love. Daniel gives his interpretation of the dream, and in so doing, he confirms the king's worst fears. The king already knew. You know how you sort of know? You've got that bad feeling, this means that, or whatever. He probably already knew. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree in the dream. Daniel says in verse 22, chapter 4, It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. So the dream foretold that he would be humbled. Why? Because he did not recognize that it is God who is sovereign and who rules supremely in the world, not Nebuchadnezzar. God saved the young and untested Nebuchadnezzar when he first had that dream early in his reign. Like I said earlier, the same with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, which is so amazing because he watched them in the fire not burn and come out and not even smell like smoke. That's amazing to me that 20 years or however many years later after that, we're back here again, other than tells me old thinking patterns. 
bring us back to our stinking thinking, right? Nebuchadnezzar would be brought low and he would be driven away from mankind for seven years. Now, according to numbers, it's called eschatology, the study of numbers, seven is the number for spiritual and physical perfection. But then he is to be restored. So God was working, he was going to work on the the ugly warts and fangs in Nebuchadnezzar and it was going to take seven years for him to do so. Nebuchadnezzar would recognize that God is the sovereign one and the ruler over the whole world. God is the one who sets up rulers. Let's remember that, ladies and gentlemen. God is the one who sets up rulers. They may be ugly, we may hate them, but God has a plan and they're in place for a reason. And And he can bring them down if necessary. God is almighty and God is in control of it all. We are to honor him with praise and worship and glory. That is why it's so important that we, we, we do this. We worship him and we praise him. Daniel goes on to tell the king to do what is right and to be kind to the oppressed. As a great builder and ruler, Nebuchadnezzar accomplished much. He built Babylon as beautiful. We'll get to some pictures in a moment. However, Daniel's mention of this need To be kind to the oppressed in verse 27 probably meant that the king was merciless to the poor. I'm sure there was a a terrible. When I read this, I began thinking about back in uh, Genesis when um, Moses uh, tried to speak up for the Hebrews and and, and the Pharaoh got mad and he took away the straw and the, uh, was it? More straw to make the brick? Yeah. And they had to work twice as hard, and they were mad at Moses for sticking up for them. They made, you know, Moses trying to do good made it harder on them. But that's a cruel heart for people, you know, that's back in the 1800s and early on, the slaves, how they were treated, the subhuman. You know, that's not right. So, um, so he was not only uh, uh, merciless to the poor, the Jewish captives. And those who labored on his projects. They were probably all sorts of different people in different statures of the Babylonian society that he didn't have any any feeling for whatsoever. He steamrolled over them. And we know the kind. People, their people are treated as things and not looked upon as humans. They're only tools and tasks for their completion. For the, you know, they don't look at they don't look at humanity. So Nebuchadnezzar had one year, at least we considering what we know. I always figured the angel told him that, but the angel didn't tell him that. He had one year, it seems, to consider Daniel's interpretation and humble himself before God, but he chooses to ignore it. And we talked about that earlier. We tend to forget and make excuses instead of really seeking, Lord, 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 you know, what are you trying to say? So archaeologists, let's back up for a moment. So archaeologists have extensively excavated ancient Babylon. So over here is an is a, um, artist's rendering of Babylon, and there's a... It's lots of water. You can't see it in this, but there's cedar trees. There's um, brick. Uh, there's the gates. Well, let me explain that. The Babylon was a stunning beauty. It was one of the world's great cities. It had a system of double walls high as an eight-story building. So I'm thinking these are the walls here all around. And then get this. They were wide and strong enough for chariots to ride on around the city. So that's that's a heck of a gate and a wall. The walls had eight gates, and um, it was constructed with multicolored bricks with towers 40 feet high on each side of each gate. 
Now, there's a famous gate. I didn't put. I didn't bother going because it was going to take us off on a bunny trail. There's a famous gate from there that they uncovered called the Ishtar Gate, and I think there was a terrible movie flop of uh, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman called Ishtar. It was a huge flop. Oh, there you go. There you go. Gus has a picture of it in his Bible, but it's it's blue. It's bright blue, like the Greek blue that you you know that cobalt blue, um, and it's got lions on it and if you look really close at this picture there's these lions this is part of the ish, part of the ishtar gate that they excavate, excavated and they found some that still have some of the blue and there's a museum over there that they used part of it but then they recreated what it would look like and i probably should have put a picture in there but that's pretty cool is that what yours is yeah it's um it's it's quite stunning when you think about this is 2500 years ago i mean wow so Anyway, I wanted to kind of give you an idea what how big and powerful even just the description of Babylon the city was. It was beautiful. And according to ancient descriptions, Babylon also had the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Now, this was a series of terraces filled with trees and shrubs and flowers connected by marble stairways and watered fountains that would that would cascade down. It was Nebuchadnezzar built it for one of his wives who longed for the mountains of her native Persia. Now remember, Babylon's out in the desert. So, you know, they, they built a beautiful, beautiful place. The Greeks listed the hanging gardens as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, I don't know how well you can see that, but let me go back. So that, I believe, right there is part of the hanging gardens right in the middle of the, of the city. So, but that's, again, an artist's rendering, but this is the actual, what they've excavated. So you can, if you, when, we can turn off the lights and see that, I can put this back on later. And you can see the stairs and every, it's, it's wow, it, it's stunning. So now, with all this in mind, okay, this big, huge, great, grandiose walls and the fact that it's the greatest city and it's, then you've got this, one of the seven wonders of the world and the hanging gardens, with this in mind, notice Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance now as he surveys his accomplishments. Okay, we have all this in mind. So now Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 30, Is it not this the great Babylon I have built as the, as a royal, as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, just can you hear the bleh, just dripping all over him? And then in the very next scripture, verse 31, it says, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. And at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar went insane. Boom. And it is believed, medical science believes, that he had an affliction called boanopthry. Oh, let's try again, Jill. Boanthropy. Boanthropy. I don't even know if I'm saying it completely right. B-O-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y. It is a condition that is very rare, but has been observed in modern times. In example, 1946, Dr. Raymond Harrison, an Old Testament scholar also, observed a young man in his early 20s with this condition. It was in a British medical in mental institute, and he was hospitalized for this for five years. The young man's appearance was that of Nebuchadnezzar's. He believed himself to be an ox, and he ate grass around the hospital grounds. He had long hair, and he had coarse fingernails. Dr. Harrison is noted as saying, quote, Without institutional care, the patient would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel 4.33. Wow. 
Only those who have battled severe mental illness know the agony and the devastation that it can cause. It is difficult to imagine a more degrading and more humbling experience for this arrogant monarch. Seven years go by, and Nebuchadnezzar's healing comes when he raises his eyes to heaven and recognizing who God is and prayerfully submitting his life to God at that moment. Now, God is accountable to no human being. Let's remember that. But rather, all human beings should be accountable to God. We need to make sure we flip that. We live in an age where man is God. And that's not because we have so much information available to us. We're like, never mind. We don't need you, God. Um, But God now restores Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and himself and permits him to reassume the throne. Now, Nebuchadnezzar concludes this document, this statement that he's saying in this chapter, with another personal confession. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. So during this time of his insanity, the Talmud, which is the ancient documents composed by the Jewish Babylonians in their time, that's what the Talmud is, they say that Daniel took care of the king during his time of illness. So that's been documented, so we do know that the king was ill. So, two questions come to mind. Did this really happen? That's asked. That's been, uh, well, that's, 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 that's a question that's asked by a lot of secular people. Really? Come on, you know. And then, did the king, from Christians, they want to know, did he really become a true believer? Okay, well, those are fair questions. That really is. That's a, that's, those are fair questions. So let's break that down for a minute. Because the, here's a worldly viewpoint. Secular critics claim that this story is only a legend because there are no other direct evidence, uh, there's no other direct evidence that exists for Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. All the ancient scriptures that they've been able to uncover don't talk about it. They also charge the Babylonian kingdom would not have remained an intact with a king being out of commission for seven years. It makes sense to me. I think those are fair questions. So let's break those down. Let's start with did this really happen? Though there is no direct evidence of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, we do know there was an extended illness, and Daniel took care of the king. But there is a Greek historian, um, Abedinus, who wrote in the 3rd century B.C. that late in the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, he was possessed by some god or other, is what he says. When, and when he uttered a particular speech in his palace he would then immediately disappear. So he might have been allowed to come in during his illness and say all sorts of things and then leave. I don't know what anybody else says, but um, this is a fragmented information, but could show that there was a mental illness of sorts due during his reign. Also, let me also point out that it, um, that ancient governments preferred not to record negative events of a king. So they chose not. That's pro- that might be one of the reasons it's left out. But remember, the Jewish Babylonians documented everything. So they do talk about there was an illness and Daniel took care of him. So we have that to go on, and then we have this Greek historian to go on. And then also, finally, since this event occurred toward the end of his reign, remember, he was, this was in, the, tw- in this, the 20th year in his reign, not 20th, but he had been reigning about, about 20 years. Um that this event, um, well, that it occurred towards the end of his reign. Okay, so there could have been something age-related to this. So the, and according to how could the 
how could the government still run? How could the kingdom still run if he was gone for seven years? The point is he had been king for 20 years, so the bureaucracy, everything was in place. It was humming like a good engine. We had everybody that knew what, they did, knew what to do, whereas when we first talked about his dreams in Chapter 2, he was a new, untested king, and there was a lot of unrest because of tax hikes and all that stuff. All right, so the palace had almost become self-sustaining. And let's also remember that Daniel was a major government leader. So Daniel was looked upon as someone to be um, highly regarded. He was a prophet, and he had prophesied that the kingdom will remain in the interpretation. For, but for seven years, you know, there's, there's going to be this, this illness. And so that might have helped prevent any attempts to overthrow the throne because of Daniel's prophecy that the king will return. So those are just some things to think about. So now let's go to the second question. Did the king become a true believer? Christian scholars, they're divided over this issue. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar makes many wonderful statements about God and seems to believe them. I mean, I I believe them if he wrote them in in his own pen. But did he really free himself from pagan thinking to trust God only, or did he simply just respect God or the God of the Jews, is one of the greatest gods of all. All right, well, did Daniel's God also become Nebuchadnezzar's God, really, is what I'm saying. All I can answer is that God is a God of the heart. And the reason I know this is because in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when I read those proclamations of Nebuchadnezzar, I tend tend to believe there was a changed heart. Um, But only God knows the way of a man's heart. And it is quite possible, though, because of how Nebuchadnezzar started this chapter and ended this chapter, we need to remember this account of what happened through Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. So let's look. Verse 3 of this chapter says, How great are his... Did I write that wrong? I sure did. How great his sign, how how mighty his wonders... His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endless endless from generation to generation. And then let's jump down to verse 35. For his dominion is everlast is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. Now remember this is a this is a this is a warrior. He he took on Egypt. He captured Egypt when his dad was in the was it, when his dad was on the throne. He was the leader, of, the commander of the army. So he under, This is language. He would he he does according to his will in the army of heaven. That's really powerful in that concept. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" Now that's submissive. That's a submissive heart. So whether Nebuchadnezzar found salvation or not, the record of his experience changed him profoundly and impacted the Jews of Babylon too. Now why would I say that? Their God had taken on the great king in a personal contest and he had triumphed over him. So that gave them hope that even though the mighty Babylonian government still ruled over them, their God, their Yahweh, had not forgotten them. And that's really, really an important point because they're in captivity. They're exiled. 
And he was there orchestrating all the events, and he is with us today, still orchestrating the events. That's why I brought that up. I don't want us to forget. God is not up there forgetting what's going on down here. He's paying attention, but he's orchestrating. And all that we see, we don't see the big picture. We only see a little bitty, bitty, bitty bit of it. So we can put our confidence in, a, in the certainty of God in our uncertain times. So I want to close out with one thing. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, who was our leader at the time, gave the following words in his proclamation of a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Can you believe we had a day like that? Now, listen to his words compared with the boastfulness of Nebuchadnezzar. Just, I want you to, this is Abraham Lincoln saying, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied the enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own intoxicated with broken with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the god that made us wow, wow. yeah so let's double check our hearts and not have a boastful spirit that we have achieved all that we have achieved on our own it is god that has allowed any goodness to happen And it is important that we humble ourselves toward him when we praise and when we pray. So let's live in such a way that God will never have to humiliate us in order to bring us to repentance and righteousness. He has dominion over all the lives, and we should give him praise and glory for it. And I just, when I was writing this and putting this all together, I just kept remembering that old song, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up higher and higher, and he will lift you up. I mean, it's, you know, we're to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, oh, you are in control. And that even when we see evil, and evil in world leaders and the power that they have, this is not lost on you that they still fall under your hand and they still fall under your rule. You are ruler over all and you are our mighty king and you are our mighty God. And you, Lord, you deserve all glory and all praise. And we worship you, Lord, in the precious and powerful and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.